1: Frank Nugent's death was the linchpin that started everything crumbling. But former bar owner Bernie Houghton saw it as an opportunity. He siphoned off hundreds of thousands of dollars of depositors' funds into his own bank accounts and prepared to flee Australia. In May, a silver-haired American in his late 50s arrived in Sydney. The American was Thomas Kleins, the CIA's former liaison officer in the Pentagon who was now running an international gun running business. According to flight records, two days later, Clines and Bernie Houghton flew to the Philippines. Houghton then proceeded to the United States and later crossed the border into Mexico. We had spoken
2: to Houghton a couple of times and had spoken to his lawyers at different times as well. And when we wanted to contact him, we found he just disappeared.
1: A week later, investigators learned of another setback. The Disappearance of Michael Hand Following a tip-off, a Sydney television crew turned up at a rundown inner-city terrace. In a cramped upstairs flat, furnished with a single bed, a wardrobe and a sink, they found Michael Hand's clothing, passport and a briefcase containing Nugent Hand documents. In his wallet, they found credit cards and $70 in cash.
3: Wow, this is indicative of some serious shit. $70 in cash. Who would run off and leave that? Well, I don't know. If I had several hundred million dollars stashed somewhere, I don't think 70 would be a deal breaker. I can't believe, you've got to be almost a rank amateur to fall for something like this. But there were people who thought Michael was dead and that his body was floating in Sydney Harbour or something.
1: The owner of the flat, Bob Gehring, was a friend of Michael Hand. He also had a U.S. Special Forces background and was a longtime business partner of Bernie Houghton. When interviewed by Joint Task Force Investigators, he consistently denied knowing the whereabouts of hand.
2: Bob Goering was interviewed several times. Uh, he was found to be unhelpful, to say the least, and when a number of his contradictions and other matters were put to him, and that he faced possible prosecution for a number of matters, he wanted to do a deal. Goering told us that Bernie Houghton was the one who had indicated that Michael Hand had to disappear. He had to go. Hand rang an American friend, who we later learned was given the codename of Charlie. Charlie came out to Australia and helped fabricate a passport using the birth certificate and records of an employee of Bob Goering's. Who was this person that Hand could just ring, who would basically drop everything and fly to Australia, become involved
1: in obtaining false passport. After his release from prison in Nepal, Doug Sapper returned to Hong Kong, where he learned of Nugent Hand's dramatic collapse, Michael Hand's escape from Australia, and the identity of the mysterious Charlie who assisted
3: him. Spencer Oswald went down there and got him out. He and I and Michael were friends in training group. Spencer Oswald worked for the CIA in Laos. Michael didn't just call up a mate. Somebody reactivated Oswald.
1: James Spencer Oswald, who had changed his name to Oswald Spencer in the wake of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, was a photographic specialist from Arizona. Flight records revealed that Spencer spent three weeks in Australia helping Michael Han create a disguise and a new identity.
3: There is a thing called tradecraft. And tradecraft is the ability to do an operation just like Spencer did, the extraction of an asset from hostile territory. Puff up your cheeks, here's a mustache, change your hair color, click, click, right to the airport. This was a great example of a magician doing a card trick. He got him out before anybody even realized he was gone. And I'm sure there were more than a few people in the Australian law enforcement community in the... Corporation Commission let piss down both legs because he was gone.
1: Five months later came another twist in the Nugent Hand saga, when Sergeant Bill MacDonald received an extraordinary phone call from his boss at the Central Investigation Bureau. I was uh, contacted in a matter of urgency in Orange from
2: the chief of the CIB. He said to me, uh, Billy, who have you got in Frank Nugent's grave? Well, that was came from left field, so far as I was concerned. I didn't even know what he was talking about. He said, there's information that Frank Newgan's alive and has been
1: seen. Attorney General Frank Walker was immediately informed of the extraordinary development. We received a report
4: from a respectable Australian businessman. He said in a supermarket in America he'd seen... Frank Newgan. He told us he knew Frank Newgan personally, he had dealings with the bank, and he was certain that the man he saw in the supermarket was Frank Newgan. It was very hard for me because I had his wife on the phone at the time ringing me saying, Don't dig up the body. But I decided in the end that it was better to be safe and sure, and I'd issued an order to exhume the body. I even attended the exhumation, which was a very miserable experience in the rain.
0: The exhumation began mid-afternoon and went for several hours. The remains are now on the way to the morgue. But it could be many days before the riddle of Frank Nugent is answered.
4: A further coroner's inquest was held and dental records showed that it was indeed Frank Nugent.
1: By year's end, the Nugenthan Bank was the subject of a dozen Australian and international investigations. The Australian liquidator estimated that as much as $50 million was missing. The corporate affairs investigation had found copious evidence of financial wrongdoing, including money laundering. Meanwhile, the Joint Task Force of State and Federal Police was still probing the bank's relationship with drug traffickers. The task force was also looking into the bank's alleged links to the Central Intelligence Agency and sought the Australian security agency ASIO's assistance to arrange a meeting with the CIA. Senior Joint Task Force investigator Clive Small. During the
2: course of the Nugent Hand inquiry, we sent official requests through the Australian government asking that the CIA provide information or explain certain things. At no time during several requests that were made did we receive a response from the CIA. We were later told at the end of the inquiry that the reason we never received a response was that, that none of the requests were passed on by ASIO to the CIA or to other intelligence organisations in the US. I find it's interesting that in such serious matters there could be a muck-up within our own intelligence services or are they covering up for the CIA? They were the two options you're left with. Neither of them was a particularly attractive option, and both options left a serious doubt in your mind.
1: The Corporate Affairs Commission also met with a roadblock when it contacted the FBI for information on the Newganhann Bank. CAC investigator Rick Porter.
4: We were able to get a copy of some documentation that the FBI had on Newganhann, which comprised 119 pages but they were so heavily sanitised that everything was crossed out in them and they were completely and utterly useless.
1: The FBI's files at that stage contained little more than correspondence. Indeed, it hadn't conducted any investigation into Nugent Hand and was unwilling to do so. And according to Jeff Nicholson, who ran the CAC investigation, the FBI attempted to shut down media criticism by underhand means. I can recall being put in touch
4: through a liquidator with two gentlemen with American accents who wished to meet with me at a location not far from Wynyard Station in Sydney. And uh, it was quite a warm day. I recall they wore the very heavy overcoats. I had my suspicions that I was being recorded. They proceeded to uh, effectively put words in my mouth uh, by saying something to the effect that uh, they hoped that that I was satisfied with the great level of cooperation that the American authorities had given uh, during the investigation, to which I responded uh, that uh, no, I was not satisfied and uh, that as far as I could see, I had no cooperation and no assistance. Uh, That terminated the conversation rather quickly and they left. That
1: certainly fanned my suspicions at the time. In late 1982, Foreign Policy magazine published in Washington featured a dramatic story about Nugent Hand Bank's relationship with the CIA and drug traffickers. The article was entitled, Dateline Australia, America's Foreign Watergate. The response in the United States was immediate. Congressmen and senators were soon making their disquiet known to the FBI. Their main concern was that narcotics had entered the United States, courtesy of Nugent Hand. The FBI obstinately stood its ground until the Wall Street Journal boldly suggested a cover-up, not only by the FBI, but also the CIA. Documents which I access through Freedom of Information reveal for the first time that the growing scandal came to the notice of the White House, which ordered the President's Intelligence Oversight Board, IOB, to contact the FBI and demand details of its Nugent Hand file. The IOB wanted to know how William Colby, Walt MacDonald, and three other former CIA officers had become involved with the bank. The White House's intervention and further allegations in the Wall Street Journal, linking the bank to arms trader Ed Wilson, convinced the FBI that it needed to be seen to be fully cooperating with Australian law enforcement and corporate authorities. Across six states, the FBI began tracking down and interviewing American citizens who had either worked for or had dealings with the bank. I obtained 700 pages of the FBI's investigation. From the non-redacted sections, it was apparent that the FBI interviewed former CIA officers Ted Shackley and Thomas Kleins, who were associated with Ed Wilson. Bernie Houghton was also listed as a person of interest, but there is no evidence to suggest that he was ever interviewed. I was able to identify another of the interviewees, none other than Michael Han's can-do man in Hong Kong, Doug Sapper, who had moved to texas to be close to his family
3: my mother told me that the fbi was looking for me and i said did you tell them where i was she said no i just told him i had no idea and i said do you think they believed you and she said probably not but you know what are they going to do and i said uh, what office of the fbi was it And she said i think it was the one in dallas i called them and the guy said where the hell are you and i said look out your window And I waved at him and he goes, don't you move. I'm coming down. And I thought, yeah, good luck, Sparky. So I left and I called him back and I said, sorry, I couldn't wait while you came down. I was late for lunch. I thought the guy was gonna have a stroke on the phone. So he basically said, well, here's how we can do this. I can come arrest you and then you're gonna stay here until I tell you you can go home or you can come in voluntarily. And this whole thing was an interview on the behalf of the Australian government of some some niche of their government. And he kept saying, do you know where Michael Hand is? And I said, no. He said, are you sure? I said, look, why don't you call the CIA and maybe they'll tell you where he is because they know. The answer to that question, of course, is I don't think they were really looking for Michael Indeed, the CIA knew exactly
1: where Michael Hand was located. In an ASIO file on the bank, I found an intriguing telex sent from a security liaison officer in Washington to the Australian spy agency's director-general. The cable revealed that an undisclosed source had advised Australian Joint Task Force investigators that Michael Hand was employed as a US military advisor to Honduras' elite 5th Puma Battalion... At the time, 150 current and former members of the U.S. Special Forces were running a CIA paramilitary training camp in eastern Honduras. The CIA was preparing the Honduran forces to conduct paramilitary operations inside Nicaragua against the Sandinista Revolutionary Forces which had toppled the Nicaraguan government in July 1979. Some of the CIA-employed military advisors were also helping anti sandinista exiles obtain weapons, which eventually culminated in the Iran-Contra scandal involving Oliver North, Richard Secord and Thomas Kleins. It was Klein, you'll recall, who helped Bernie Houghton escape from Australia. The operation involved recruiting drug traffickers to the cause and using drug money to buy weapons. This type of activity had Michael Hand's name all over it. For Hand to slot back into such a role suggests that he never ceased his association with the CIA. On receipt of this information, the Joint Task Force investigators asked ASIO to help in tracking down Hand in Honduras. But they were sorely disappointed. ASIO said that it was unable to assist as it had no direct liaison in the Honduras-Nicaraguan region and there's no evidence in the Agio files to suggest that the spy agency asked the CIA to help track down Michael Hand.
4: And I think it's a very good question as to why nothing was done about it. I often found, not only as a state minister, but later on as a federal minister, that the interest of the security service is often put first. The national interest is often seen in terms of keeping the good relationship between ASIO, the CIA, MI5 or whatever around the world. And uh, having that good relationship is seen to produce intelligence that is more important to Australia than bringing some criminals to justice.
2: I think there's another political problem in all of this, and that is that if any attempt had been made to bring Michael Hand back to Australia for any reason and to prosecute him, there was always a chance that there would be material that would come out that would be extremely embarrassing to the governments of Australia, and that would include Hand's connection with intelligence agencies, both in Australia and in the US.
5: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns. By early 1983,
1: the two main Australian investigations had become so politically charged that the federal and New South Wales state governments set up a royal commission into the Nugent companies. In 1985, the commission delivered its findings. It found that the bank was insolvent at all times. But regardless of the testimonies of bank executives and evidence to the contrary, the commission found nothing to support the allegations that Nugent participated in arms stealing and the financing of drug traffickers. It is undoubted that Nugent Hand
4: Bank was involved in drug trafficking by sending money backwards and forwards between drug
1: cartels. Why was no action taken against the directors of the board of that company? The commission also found no evidence that the Chiang Mai office was established to attract deposits from drug producers of the so-called Golden Triangle, even though Nugent Han staffer Neil Evans had testified that the office had been opened for precisely that purpose. Regarding the bank's involvement with the CIA, the Commission found this allegation to lack substance. The
2: Royal Commission was so dismissive of an American connection, many people simply felt that it was a cover-up because it was, in effect, so superficial and so dismissive.
3: It's like in the Western movies. It's horse shit and gun smoke. Maybe from the Australian side, there was no evidence. But at one point, Nugent Hand became the conduit bank for the CIA. The Nuganhan Bank's depositors lost
1: at least $50 million, and possibly a great deal more. Only two people were ever prosecuted, and merely for their part in the destruction of the bank's records. After a year-long sojourn by the beach in Acapulco, Bernie Houghton returned to Sydney and the bourbon and beefsteak in King's Cross, which he managed until his death in 2000. A number of the bank's staff attempted unsuccessfully to capitalise on their Nugent Hand experience. One was jailed for eight years for drug importation. Another spent 32 months in prison for arms trading and tax avoidance schemes. If Frank Newgan had lived, he would have likely shared a cell with his brother, who was jailed for six months for fraud. Other players in the Nugent Hand scandal met with sticky ends. Law clerk Brian Alexander disappeared, He was allegedly dropped overboard from a cabin cruiser with an antique oven tied to his legs. Former CIA director William Colby went missing in 1996. He was found dead nine days later. The police said he had gone out paddling his canoe at nightfall and drowned. Bob Goering, who told investigators how Michael Hand had fled from Australia, was found dead in a hotel bathtub while on a visit to the United States in 2003. As for Michael Hand, he had vanished into the ether, allegedly with millions of dollars of depositors' funds.
4: My view was that uh, Michael Hand disappeared because he knew how to disappear. From 1980 to now, not a hide and, nor hair of Michael Hand has been seen around the world. He walked out of that court at Lithgow and no one has ever seen him since. He's not a ghost, surely. Is he? Someone must know where he went.
3: Michael has not talked since and refuses to let anybody that knows where he is tell me. In 2002, I ran into it at a special forces reunion, a guy that was on his team. And I said, you know, what do you hear from Michael? And he said, I've been told not to tell you anything. I said, well, that's kind of chicken shit. And he said, well, he just doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And I have no idea why.
1: Since Han's disappearance in 1980... Australian and US journalists have attempted but failed to locate the rogue banker, who has to be considered as one of the world's most elusive corporate fugitives. Throughout my research, I also made numerous fruitless attempts to hunt him down. But in March 2015, as I penned the final chapters of my book on the Nugent Hand scandal, I decided to take a new approach. I'd always suspected that Hand would have changed his name, But I recalled a conversation with a former spy who said that it was standard practice for people in the intelligence world to keep their first name in case they were approached by someone from their past. Michael is an all too common name, but I suspected that the chances of tracing him would be improved tenfold if he had also kept his middle name John, spelt in the far less common fashion J-O-N. I made two other assumptions, that he was living in the United States, and that at some time in the last 35 years, he had re-entered the business world. So I began trawling through corporate and government records, state by state. I started with Arizona, the home state of Oswald Spencer, who assisted Hand escape from Sydney. I then searched New York, New Jersey and Washington, states where Hand had once lived, Again, I came up with nothing. I then tried Idaho, which borders on Washington State, and discovered a manufacturing firm located in Idaho Falls, owned by a Michael John Fuller. In the company's registration documents, I was immediately struck by Fuller's handwriting and signature. The E was a reverse three, and the I was topped with a small circle rather than a dot. Quirks similar to those I'd seen in Hand's Australian Immigration Records from 1967. I called the company phone number.
5: Howdy, this is Mike.
0: Please leave your message, date and time, and I'll return your call as soon
1: as possible. The voice on the answer machine was that of an elderly man, but it was clearly similar to an army radio recording of Hand that I'd uncovered from 1965. Fuller's date of birth and social security number also turned out to be identical to those of Michael Hand. I then found photographs of Michael John Fuller from 2012. He was a thick-set man in his 70s with a full beard, grey hair, pearly white teeth and piercing blue eyes. When superimposed over a photograph of Michael Hand taken in Sydney in 1978, Fuller's eyes, nose, ears and teeth aligned perfectly. From published sources, I learned that Michael Fuller had served his country from Southeast Asia to Africa with Special Forces and other U.S. government agencies, which is a common code for the CIA. I found other company records which revealed that Fuller had set up a firm in the early 1990s which specialised in paramilitary training for special operations groups, SWAT teams and law enforcement agencies around the world. In the late 1990s, Fuller began manufacturing tactical weapons for US Special Forces troops, Special Operations Groups and Hunters. Many of his weapons were designed to work in the unforgiving conditions of combat, and harked back to the Battle of Dong Shui, when out of ammunition, Michael Hand used his k-bar knife to rip through the sternum of a Viet Cong attacker before removing the man's head from his body with his bare hands. With assistance from the Western Australian Film Authority, Screen West, we set out to verify that Hand, A.K.A. Fuller, was indeed still alive. We hired a former criminal investigator for Idaho's Attorney General, who sent a team down to Idaho Falls.
3: I'm, I'm getting video of him. How fast can you drive by the cafe? Okay, head, head over there because he's walking across the street. All I'm well. All I'm saying is just head over there quick because if he walks in there I want to be able to say where he went.
1: They obtained video footage that confirmed Michael Hand was definitely not a ghost. We gave the story to 60 Minutes Australia. In September 2015 they travelled to the United States in the hope of talking to Hand. They swooped as he left the shopping centre. The moment he saw the camera he knew the game was over.
4: Michael John Hare, Ross Coulthard, 60 Minutes Australia. We've been looking for you for a long time, sir. We'd really like to talk to you, Mike. And moreover, there are a lot of people in Australia who are owed a lot of money by you. $50 million. A lot of good people lost their, their livelihood because of you, Mike. And a lot of people are very concerned also about what you were doing for the CIA covert operations in that part of the world. Mike, uh, we know it's you. Why not just stop and talk, mate? We'd prefer to talk to you. We don't want to have to chase you around town. Think about it, Mike. 35 years, Mike. What do you think Australia is going to
3: say when they hear where you are?
4: What do you think the Australian government's going to do when they know where Michael Hand is?
1: The international reaction was immediate.
5: New at 6 tonight, our Shannon Camp has the latest on a story that's making headlines right now around the world, Shannon.
0: Mark, it really is a crime story you'd expect to see in the movies or read about in a James Patterson book. It's almost too unbelievable to be true. The owner of a well-known bank rumored to have ties to the CIA and organized crime vanishes off the face of the earth. Tonight, it's where he turned up that has people in Idaho and around the world shaking their heads. The book that was inspired by this story hits shelves today. It is called Merchants of Menace by Australian writer Peter Butt. I spoke to the author on the phone this afternoon from Australia. He says the Australian authorities have reached out to him asking for his research, but he is unsure of whether they will reopen the investigation into Michael John Handy. Wow, what a story. Thanks so much for bringing it to
3: us, Shannon.
1: The Australian Federal Police have since carried out a new inquiry into Hand, including interviewing former investigators. Because no arrest warrant had ever been issued for Hand, his extradition was deemed legally impossible. That said, he is now persona non grata in the United States. As a result of the negative publicity, he was forced to resign as president of his manufacturing firm. That alone, I guess, is a fitting result for someone... Who money laundered for drug traffickers and stole millions of dollars of investors' money. But knowing Michael John Hand, with his shadowy background and rat cunning, I wouldn't be surprised if he hasn't again changed his identity and disappeared into the proverbial ether. This podcast series is derived from my book, Merchants of Menace, the true story of the Hand Bank scandal available from blackwattlepress.com.au and Amazon Books. Many thanks to composer Guy Gross, The City of Sydney, Screen West, The Nine Network, Ross Coulthard, Calvin Gardner, Anna Grieve, Harry Bardwell and Sarah Stavely. Produced by Blackwattle Films in association with Blackwattle Press.